if Christ is why you gathered here this morning, say amen. amen. He is. He's our reason for gathering. He's our reason for meeting. He is um, really our everything. And in the spirit of that, let's uh, take a moment to just silence our hearts, not for 30 minutes, right, but for a few seconds, and then I'll pray, and we'll be in Psalm 139 this morning. Let's, let's bow our heads. Lord, you have um, made yourself known to us, and it's not any lack of clarity on your part when we don't perceive rightly, and thus we don't behave rightly, and we don't think rightly. It's nothing to do with the clarity of your message, but rather the dullness of the readers and receivers. And so, Lord, wipe away any dullness we have now, that we might come to your word, that we might know you more fully, that we might worship you more fully, and love you more fully. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So there's a band I really like called The Corner Room. Um, they, they have taken, I believe they have three albums now, and they just take the English Standard Version Bible and they set Scripture to music, and it's really good. It's really good, and uh, if you're like me, music helps my mind to memorize things. And so when I put Scripture or anything else I want to memorize to music, I mean, I've done this, you know, we, we use these little devices with our kids to help them learn things, and little sing-songy things help them learn things. That doesn't go away when you're not a child anymore. It actually, as an adult, it helps. So um, the Corner Room, they have their second album, Psalms Volume 2. They have Psalm 139. It's broken into three different songs uh, in there. And so you might look them up this week on Amazon or Spotify or however you get your music. Uh, they're on everything. So The Corner Room, Psalm 139. Um, and so you, if you listen to that enough, then when you hear a psalm read, you just automatically start singing it and you have it memorized. It's amazing how the Lord wired us that way. Um, to hide his word in our hearts. So the title of this sermon is Intimate Knowledge, and it's going to focus mainly on what God knows about you. But before we talk about what God knows about you, I want to begin today first with a reminder of our knowledge of him and the value of our knowledge of God and what he's offered to us. So if you go to Psalm 139, we're actually going to be at the last, we're going to start in the last two verses today that we're going to, uh, that I'm going to preach of this section of Scripture. I'm going to come back at the end of this month and preach 19 through 24 and then all of 140 as well. They kind of pair a little bit better together, topically speaking. So I'm going to come back and hit the end of this psalm then. So we're going to focus on the first 18 verses of Psalm 139 this morning. In the last two verses of that section, 17 and 18, say this. How precious are your thoughts. How precious to me are your thoughts, O God. How vast is the sum of them. If I would count them, they are more than the sand. I awake and I am still with you. So that's what the psalmist is saying there in 18. Like, God's thoughts are so numerous 
and so uh, there's so many of them and, and so unsearchable. They're like grains on the sand. And the image he's giving you here is like you're literally, he's literally trying to count grains of sand. And then he falls asleep. See that? And then he wakes up because he fell asleep counting the grains of sand. There were so many. And he lost count and he has to start all over again. That's the image that the psalmist is giving here that it, it just goes on and on and on. There's no end to these thoughts of God. So the reason that week after week after week, preachers stand in this pulpit and open the Bible and seek to exposit or to expose the information that lies within the texts isn't because we need a platform to display cleverness. In fact, the Lord thinks rather little of cleverness, of preaching cleverness. The reason we exposit, the reason we preach, is because the creator of all the universe and our righteous judge has made a way that we might have an intimate knowledge of him. It's through his word. He has made his thoughts known in a uniquely specific way in the Old and New Testaments. They are inspired by God. And that word inspired actually means God breathed them out. Therefore, His words speak to who He is and to His character. It's authoritative, meaning it has authority. It is permanent, meaning it will never go away. It will never subside. There's been vast efforts by powerful men to get rid of the Bible throughout all of human history. They have been woefully unsuccessful, and they will be continually woefully unsuccessful to extinguish the Word of God. And it is sufficient, meaning it's enough. God knew in putting together the Bible all the needs of every man and every woman who would ever walk the face of this earth. So although we are far removed by years from the writing of this material, and sometimes like the agricultural metaphors and so forth seem to fly over our heads because all the agriculture we know is Jonas bringing you a big bag of grape tomatoes on a Sunday morning or whatever, you know. Although we're far removed from the writing of it, it has an immediate impact on us because of who the author is. The author of the Bible also authored you. The author of the Bible also authored you. He made both the writings and the readers. And one might say to me, well, I understand what you're saying, Pastor Kurt, but isn't ultimately whether one accepts the Bible as ultimate authority an act of faith? And I would say to that, yes. In the final analysis of accepting the authority of the Bible, it is an act of faith. But it is an act of faith that isn't contrary to reason or isn't contrary to knowledge and knowing. When the Bible speaks of faith or coming to believe something to be true, it does not do so in terms of blind reliance, just leaping into oblivion through disengaging our thought process. That's not biblical faith. But in point of fact, when the Bible speaks of faith, it does so in conjunction with our rationality, working with our ability to think, not against our ability to think. When the prophet Isaiah is trying to draw God's people in to have faith in what he's saying in God, in the God in whom he is speaking in Isaiah chapter 1, he doesn't say, come now everybody and let's put our brains on the shelf. He says, come and let us reason together. Let us 
think this through together. So an immediate exhortation from Psalm 139, verses 17 and 18 this morning, for the person who has put their Bible aside because they think they have gleaned everything they could from it, and it's just not exciting anymore. I've been there. Have you been there before in those seasons of your life where you're just kind of like, meh, I've read Luke 2 a hundred times. I've read Leviticus 19 50 times. We all can get there. And you think you've got a grasp on it. You think you understand it. You think you've squeezed everything you can squeeze out of it. And I, I, if that's you this morning, and I'm speaking to myself some here too, you have no more conquered the thoughts of God than you have counted the grains of sand on a beach. And to the person with no knowledge of the Lord God through His Word, you're not that far behind that person who thinks they've got it. God is infinitely searchable, yet has made knowledge of Himself available to us through His Word. Now, why did I start there? In a passage about knowing, why did I start there? Because it is your knowledge, your knowing of His knowledge, His knowing, that defines how you understand the world. I'll say that again. Your understanding, your knowing of God's knowing of things, and in this passage specifically, His knowing of you, determines how you will live out your days. It shapes your worldview and then your world, how you see the world, how you think things work, where you know you came from, and so on and so forth. And then that determines your habits and what, putting one foot in front of the other every day. So if we don't see the psalmist, we don't see what the psalmist saw and proclaimed in Psalm 139, verses 17 and 18. If we don't value the Bible as the thoughts of God offered to you, well, then there's much more clever and entertaining ways to spend your Sunday mornings than listening to a pastor preach a sermon from God's Word. If, if, it's just, if we're just here for cleverness, then, well, there's better shows in town, to put it in layman's terms, right? But we're not. We're here because God has spoken to us. And if you want to know what God knows, then you're in the right place. The British preacher Martin Lloyd-Jones said that all of our problems come down to an ignorance about God. And in this instance, if you knew what He knows about you, it will have a profound and immediate impact on your life. So Psalm 139 uses beautiful imagery to wake the reader up, to, not to God's impersonal knowledge of the universe. I, I do, I like, I'm a kind of a sucker for some of those like, um, creation science things where it talks about the vastness of the universe and so forth. And I really, I think those are cool um, and I'm wowed by them. But Psalm 139 leaves all that aside, God's impersonal, vast impersonal knowledge about the universe, but and focuses in rather on the most complex and complicated creation that you're aware of. You. You. What does God know about you. And so it's this section, it's 1 through 16, um, is broken into three sections. Verses 1 through 6 ask the question, what does God know about you? 7 through 12, can you get away from God's knowing of you or His knowledge about you? 
And then thirdly, how does he know all of this? How does he know it all? So first, one through six. I'm just gonna, we're just gonna go verse by verse. I'm gonna give some commentary on it, and then we're gonna answer the question based upon the evidence offered to us in the passage. So verse one, what does God know about you? To the choir master, a psalm of David, search me, O God, and know my heart. O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. So even those things that we think are trivial, the Lord is aware of. Our movements. You just thought you were sitting down because you were tired. No, you're sitting down because God has preordained that you're going to sit down, that you get tired. He knows why you're tired in that way. He's aware of your comings in and your goings out. He's aware when you're, when you're sleepy, when you're angry, when you storm out of a room. He's aware. You discern my thoughts from afar. Ooh, that's dangerous. Those things that you manage to keep from coming out of your mouth and you keep locked up inside of your brain, the conversations you have with yourself. And as I get older, I find myself talking to myself a whole lot more. He knows those conversations. He knows your thoughts. Every thought you've ever had, he, he's aware of it. Verse 3, you search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all of my ways. This has to do with your habits, your ways, right? Where you go, your sleep schedule, what you like to eat, what you like to do for entertainment, what motivates you, what exhausts you. He knows it. And it says not only does he know it, he's well acquainted with it. Like a like a husband and a wife would be well acquainted, right? Well, normally, sometimes we play that, like, we, we used to play that newlywed game sometimes, and we'd figure out real quick that some of us aren't as well acquainted with one another as maybe we, sh- we ought to be or like to be or whatever, right? But there is no mystery with God. He knows your favorite color. He knows what you like to eat. He knows what pushes your buttons, he knows it. Even before a word is on my tongue, verse 4, Behold, O Lord, you know it altogether. He knows what you're going to say before you know what you're going to say. Think back to the last time you really, really, really didn't handle a situation very well. And you took your foot, as they say, and you had to stick it in your mouth. God knew that was going to happen before you knew that was going to happen. He's aware of it. I like this next one. Verse 5, you hem me in behind and before and lay your hand upon me. He knows you so well and the situation around you that he knows what threatens you. Okay, He knows what threatens you from behind. So think about this in military terms. From behind, an enemy coming from behind is an ambush, right? You are not aware of it. So he knows you well enough to know those things that can harm you that you're not aware of and probably maybe won't ever even become aware of because God's hemmed you in from those things, right? Sometimes you get a glimpse into those things that maybe could have harmed you and didn't. Everybody, anybody ever had a near car accident? You just, it was one of those moments you had to pull over because you're shaking so bad, and you say, thank you 
I did not see that coming. He hems you in. Behind, but then he says, behind and before. So he, he protects you not only from others or things that you can't see coming, but also the things you can see coming. So who's he protecting you from then? Yourself. Yourself. When you've prayed for something that was dumb, just dumb, and you can see it 20-20 hindsight, you look back and say, man, I, I wanted that thing so bad, and if I would have got it, it would have been really bad. Wouldn't, I would have been kept from this thing that's even better. So he hems you in, meaning he protects you. He puts the hedge of, you know, the old saying, he puts the hedge of protection around you, behind you, those things that you don't see coming, and before you, those things that you maybe are going after and you do see coming, but they're not the right thing for you. His hand of protection is upon you. Your hand is upon me. And then verse 6, such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high, I cannot attain it. So already the psalmist's mind is just blown by God's knowledge of him. He can't even conceive of knowing all those things about himself, let alone someone outside of him knowing all these things about him. And his mind, when he thinks about it, it's, it's just too much, too wonderful. It causes him to worship and praise So to the person who believes maybe there's a higher power, but that God doesn't care about us on a personal level, that would be called an agnostic or a a deist, right? Psalm 139 is kind of of your worst nightmare, because according to this psalm, God is a very personal, very knowing God. So let's answer the question together. What does God know about you? Ready? Everything. Everything everything. And some of you might think you're rather simple people, but you're not. None of us are. All of us have complex emotions and thoughts, feelings. When we study our ancestors or when we, you know, well, I get that trait from my, you know, I've heard people say, I get that trait from my grandma or what have you. God knows all of that. He knows all of your lineage. He, he, he goes back all the generations and bequeathed you with stubbornness for some reason, right? Or whatever. The finer traits. He knows it all. He orchestrates it all. Everything. Second stanza, 7 through 12. Question. Can anyone get away from God's knowledge? So this, this, that first question is the main question, and then the psalmist goes about just kind of illustrating it, and it's kind of like a, a, a symphony piece that, um, you know, you, it's, all, it's playing the same, type, like same key, same tempo, same music, but it's repeating it, and it gets louder and more complex to really prove the point. That's what we get in the different stanzas here. He's, now he's going to say, he really knows me really well, and then he's going to illustrate that by using this illustrative language. So, second stanza, can anyone get away from God's knowledge? So, it's very thorough knowledge God has of you. Can you get away from it? Verse 7, where shall I go from your spirit, or where shall I flee from your presence? He's going to answer his own question. Where can I go? It's a rhetorical question. Verse 8, if I ascend to heaven... You are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, 
You are there. So David is saying, at the highest point I can conceive of, you're there. If I were to fly as high as I can imagine flying, you're there. If I could dive as deep as I could think about diving, you're there. You see the imagery he's using? If I make my bed in Sheol, which is the, the Hebrew equivalent of hell or the afterlife, the, the, uh, the place of the dead. So it's kind of like the song, the love of God, the love of God is greater far than tongue or pen can ever tell. It goes beyond the highest star, reaches to the lowest hell, right? This is what the psalmist is doing. If I take the wings of the morning, this is, this is neat, that the Hebrew there means rays of sun burst. The first, if you've ever watched the sunrise, you see the sun pop up over the horizon, or just before it does, you see that burst of light that comes up over it. Those are the wings of the morning. So if I could ride on the wings of the morning, if I could move at the speed of light, David's saying, and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, which to the Hebrews, the sea was a great, great mystery. It's pretty much a mystery to us too, but to them, it was completely unknown. And this is David's way of saying, if I could move as fast as I can to the most unknown and remote place in all of the earth where no one could follow me, then guess what? Even there your hand shall lead me, verse 10. And your right hand shall hold me. Okay, so sorry for you lefties, but right hand here is signifying the dominant hand of God. Okay? So, you know, most people are right-handed. Sorry, you live in a right-handed world, lefties. I have a lefty in my house. <clears throat> God made him that way, right? But it's not, but, it, but it's different. So God's, what it's saying here is meaning even in this most remote place, God is still very much making oversight of David a priority to him. He has the right hand of God. The dominant hand of God is upon him. Even if he were to go as fast as he could, as far away as he could, in the remotest place, God is there. And this next one's a little bit more, um, a little bit more metaphorical, okay? Verse eleven: If I say, "Surely the darkness shall cover me, and the light be about the light about me be night," even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is as bright as the day, for darkness is as light to you. When we want to hide something that we're doing, or people, if somebody wants to hide something they're doing, usually they will do it under the cover of what? Darkness, night. So the psalmist is saying here that even if I do my absolute best to hide what I'm doing from you, O Lord, it makes no difference to you. All of our best attempts to hide anything cannot be done. Even in our attempts to rebel and hide from God. It cannot be done. Has anybody, anybody ever done this where you, you are, uh, you've done something and you know it's wrong and your conscience is stricken about it and you think, well, if I just, you, you almost don't even want to pray. Like you, 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 you want to like do the thing that the three-year-old does where if you can't see them, 
or they can't see you, then they think you can't see them. So they like throw the cover over their head, right? And there's a big bulge in the bed, and it's obvious they're there, but the, the blanket's over their head, and, the, and they, they, you know, so, so especially when they've done something wrong, I'll just hide, right? I'll never forget one time, I, uh, my, my sister and I were jumping on the bed, and we'd been told, don't jump on the bed, and uh, I, uh, so when I was in the air, my sister thought it would be cool when my feet weren't on the ground to push me, and then my, my rear end went through the drywall, behind me, and, we both, and I sat in the drywall, and I looked at her, and she looked at me with this look. So what did I do? What anybody would do, right, in my situation, any 12-year-old or so. I put a Michael Jordan poster over it. It was the 90s. And then what did I do? I hid. Hid. I hid. That didn't work out so well, right? It doesn't work. When we do wrong things, you cannot hide them from God. It's in His view. So, question two. But also, before I go there, before I answer the question two, the bad things, yes, we can't hide from God, but neither, neither do the good things. Neither is the, are the intentions of our hearts, especially when they're righteous, hidden from God. Can anyone get away from God's knowledge of them? We all say this together. Ready? One, two, three. No. No. Can't. So God knows everything. We can't get away from His knowledge. Third question. Final stanza. 13 through 16. This is, a, this is the famous passage, Psalm 139, verses 13 through 16. We see this a lot, especially in our current culture, right, when we're talking about babies. Here it is. I'm just going to read the whole thing as a block, and then we're going to talk about it. Verse 13. You formed my inward parts. So the question is, how does he know all of this? How does he know it all? 13. You formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. And depths of the earth is just another metaphor for the darkness of a womb. Your eyes saw my unformed substance, and your book were written, every one of them. And this is what was written in his book before you were born. The days that were formed for you. Every one of them. And as yet there was none of them. When you had had no days, God knew all your days. Okay, three little words here. God made me. From the, from the time where we, we teach our little toddlers toddling around the preschool room, who made you? God made me. But to think about that, if you, if you sit and meditate and dwell on what does that mean? What, is it, what are the implications of the fact that God made me? God made you. Think about everything that goes into making something. Some of you do pottery or art. Some of you work with metal or wood or PVC. You build houses, furniture. 
cars. When you make something and it's finished and you stand back and look at it, you know that object better than anyone else, right? You, you remember running out of a certain material and jerry-rigging something else in there, right? No, nobody else might be able to see it, but you know it's there. You remember when you got tired and made a flaw that you had to find a way to hide. You see what no one else sees because you made it. How does God know all of this about you? Because He made you. He created you. That's how He knows you so well. Hear me out. This might seem rather simplistic, but I think it it begs to be a reminder to us. You are not an evolutionary accident. Okay? You did not come from a chimpanzee. Can I get a witness? You are not an accident. You did not come from a chimpanzee. You are fearfully, wonderfully, wonderfully, specifically, and intentionally made by God. Fearfully, wonderfully, specifically, intentionally made and known by God. This portion of Psalm 139 is often used as a proof text in making a case against abortion. And that's an apt, it is apt in that situation, but not for all the reasons you might think. Listen to me. They know it's a baby. They know it's a human. The fight is a little farther upstream, though. When God's people think baby or human, we think fearfully, wonderfully, specifically, intentionally made by God. Known, loved, and has value. But if you think human, follow the logic, if you think human equals clump of cells brought about by random evolutionary processes, whether that clump of cells is in the womb, out of the womb, or one foot in the tomb, it doesn't matter. What's the difference? Me ridding myself of the inconvenience of another clump of cells only makes evolutionary sense if that other clump of cells brought about by random evolutionary process is inconveniencing me and holding me back. Make sure, here's a real quick application. Make sure you're paying attention to what's in your child's science textbook this fall. If it doesn't tell them that they are fearfully and wonderfully authored, created, and made by God, get a different textbook. And if that's a problem, maybe you want to find a different school. And yes... We need to let Psalm 139 ring out on the steps of the abortion clinics. But long before that, we must make sure it's ringing out on the steps of whatever schoolhouse is shaping the hearts and minds of our children and our people. You are fearfully and wonderfully made. Say it with me. Say it. I am fearfully and wonderfully made by God. By God. 
the battle for what it means to be made by God has to be won here, and it has to be won here. Then it can be made. Then it can be won there, out there. Here for us, and here for us, then there with them. This is where God wins. So in conclusion, let me give you a a few practical exhortations I gleaned from Psalm 139 as I went through it. As we consider God's knowledge of us, as we know His knowing of us, what does that do in us? First, as we consider God's knowledge of us, it should lead us to praise Him, like David did in Psalm 139. How pre- when he's overwhelmed, how precious are your thoughts, O God, to me. How precious. When, he's, when he gets to verse 6 and he's just overwhelmed by the thought of God's knowing him, it brings about worship. So as we consider God's knowledge of us, it should lead us to praise him. Second, knowledge of this truth should also be a help in temptation and a motivation to holiness, right? So if I know, if I, we should be ashamed, brothers and sisters, we should be ashamed to sin in God's presence, even if we, that's the definition of character, right, from the, the old, um, the old uh, moral teachings is if you wouldn't do it in front of somebody, don't do it behind closed doors, right? That's what character is. Well, look, newsflash, with God, you're never behind closed doors, so, you know, where you, you've, we've all been in the situation where maybe you have the opportunity to be a little bit dishonest and nobody's going to know it, but it'll put you ahead. Someone's going to know it. God is going to know it. Okay? You see where I'm going with this. And this isn't, this isn't so we lived our lives battered and abused like we have some, some overbearing monster of a God always breathing over our shoulder. No, he, what he has said is good is good for us too. So really what he wants, he wants you to obey him because it's actually what's best for you. It's only when we're in rebellion against him that we think maybe those things, well, it'd be better for me if I went this way and I stole or I lied or I looked when I shouldn't look and so on and so forth. So the knowledge of what God knows about us should help us in temptation and our motivation towards holiness. David said in Psalm 51, the worst thing about what he did with Uriah's wife was that it was done in thy sight, in the sight of God. Right? He wasn't, I mean, there were several people that were also aware and involved, but he didn't say, well, you know, the worst thing about it is that my soldiers now think I'm a hack. No, he said, the worst thing about it is that I've done this in thy sight. Oh, Lord. Live innocently. God is present. Live innocently. God is present. Third, third thing. God not only sees our sins, but also the right intentions of our hearts. It's easy for us to, to give the best of all possible motives to ourselves and attribute the worst possible motives to everybody else. When people misjudge us or we misjudge other people, it's a comfort to know that God is all-knowing of all of us, Right? We can take comfort in the fact that even when we get these relationships wrong, God has the 10,000-foot view, and He sees what's good about all of our intentions and so forth, and He has a way of reconciling those things as we obey Him. Fourth, 
God's knowledge of us ought to lead us to humility. What is our knowledge compared to God? Furthermore, what's your, I mean, when you think about it, what is your knowledge of even yourself compared to God's knowledge of you? It's very small. It's very small, and that should humble us greatly. Fifth, God really knows you, and He really can be known. There is much that is mysterious about God, but there is not a contradiction in Him. He cannot be holy and not holy, good and not good, just and not just, and so on. He has made Himself known to you exactly in the way that you need to know Him. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, right? So rightly knowing God and fearing Him, knowing His knowing is the beginning of your knowing. You can't begin to know anything for sure until you know that God knows you. I recently heard a preacher ask, how long do you think you would last before you ran from the room in shame if we played a video of all your actions right here on this screen for all of us to see? Let me answer for you, because I'll answer for myself. Probably not very long. I'll go even one further. How about if we, not just your actions, what if we put your thoughts up there? All your thinkings and all your ways. Not very long, right? Probably would say, don't even press play. I'm just going to leave. Right? God has seen the video. He has seen the video. We are ashamed to be totally known by our fellow sinners. How much more terrifying is the thought to be totally known by a completely holy and righteous judge who has the power to punish you for all of eternity and the right to as well? He would be perfectly just to do so. He has seen it all, every thought, every deed, everything. Nothing is hidden from the view of God. You are laid before Him, and that is absolutely terrifying because we can't conceive of that level of transparency whereby we won't be betrayed, right? Because we're used to these relationships where we get burned, where we get abused, where we tell a secret and our secret gets told, where we're transparent and somebody's not equally transparent in return. It's terrifying to think about being that transparent with anybody, let alone the God of the entire universe, unless he only wants what's best for you. Unless that's what he wants. Scripture testifies it is so, unless he plans to prosper you and not harm you, like Jeremiah says. Unless he loves you more than you can comprehend, it's terrifying. But it's not terrifying because all those things are 100% true, scriptural, factual. He knows everything about you, yet he sent his son to die your death. He watched the film. He's seen it all. He knows what's coming. And yet he still said, this is my child. I sin Christ. Christ will die for him. With full knowledge of you, the good, the bad, and the ugly, as we sang this morning, Jesus paid it all. He knows you and he invites you 
to know him. This is the gospel. While we were yet sinners, what? Christ died for us. That's right. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. God has seen the video. He knows you entirely, yet he sends his son Christ to die on your behalf that through faith and belief in him, not putting your brain on the shelf type of faith, but through reasoning and understanding and believing in the factual events of the Son of God, Jesus Christ, and putting your faith in His ability to save you, His ability to love you, His ability, even despite all the, all the bad things you've done, all the things that He knows about, that only you and Him know about. Christ died for you. Christ died for you. And He invites you to know Him. He knows you, and He invites you to know Him. Anyone who might want to come talk about knowing God in this way, knowing Him more, I'll be around after. We can pray after we release. You could feel free to come talk with me. I'll probably just stay about right here. Okay, we, we, we uh, um, you know, when you get away, you got time to reflect and stuff, and you get time to think. I just can't, if you didn't know, I, that might seem off the wall to you. I've been on vacation for a couple weeks, and um, if there's one thing I, th- I think, I know I'm going to try to do, do better with, it's this. If you need to pray with somebody, come and pray with me, right? There's, we have elders in this church, Ron, this is big Ron right here, the black shirt. Lots of times they're wearing those black polos with the, lo- the cross logo on it, the MV Baptist cross logo. There's lots of brothers that will pray with you, talk with you. This is what we do here. Listen, none of, us, none of us have figured this thing out. There is no figuring this thing out. The thoughts of God are like the, the grains of sand on the seashore. We're, we're just one beggar telling another beggar where to find bread. Come and pray. Come and talk. Come and relate. Come and understand. You heard about a members meeting earlier. That's it, it, we have members meetings because we love each other and we're all accountable to each other and we're trying to know God together and know each other more and and do right by the Lord, okay? So, I will be here. I'll stay here. I'm not going to go there. I'll stay here. You can come talk to me if you need to talk to me about knowing God, okay? And if you're doing so well in your knowledge of God, and you're, you're walking well with Him, maybe you should come talk to me too, because there's probably something I could glean from you, probably something I could, I could get help with from you. Amen? It's been good to be in your presence this morning, brothers and sisters. If you would, let's stand together. Let's pray. I have several prayer concerns to pray over this morning. And as I say amen, you can be dismissed. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, help us to to know you as you know us, to search you out as you search us out to be intimately knowledgeable of you as you are intimately knowledgeable of us. As we come to your word, help us come with curiosity and excitement, love. Fill us with your spirit that we might do that. Well, we pray for R.C.'s dad, Ray. He's had several health concerns. We just lift him up before you. We lift up uh, Mark Gibson's mother, Terry, who's having a cardiac procedure this afternoon. We lift up Brother Jim Kobeluck, who uh, had health concerns and had to relocate to New Jersey to live with his daughter. 
that she might take care of him. Pray for that good brother. Lord, we're thankful for the time we got with him and the encouragement he gave to all of us. Lord, we lift up Colleen Goodwin, the Goodwin family, at the loss of her grandmother. We ask, Lord, for your comforting hand upon them in this time. Help us to be um, an instrument of mercy to them on your behalf, Lord. Lord, we pray for uh, our elder Mark Lambright's father, who is undergoing cancer procedures. This week, pray for him. Homer, lift him up. Lord, we lift up Miss Mildred Yonker, who's going to be able to be with us, Lord willing. Your, may you bring it about, Lord, that she might be able to be with us once a month. And she's, she's, she's frail and old, Lord, and, but she still, as her body weakens, her, her soul and her heart desires to be with you and to be with your people. And so, Lord, we, we thank you for that opportunity. We ask that you bring it to pass. Lord, we pray for the Watsons who are traveling, our pastor. Keep them safe, help them to relax and have a good time. And Lord, finally, we pray for Jamie and Lee Pilkington, our newest members. We ask your gracious hand upon them. We ask that we might be instruments for their discipleship. We ask, Lord, that you would keep them as you keep all of us so powerfully, Lord. Thank you for your word. feels kind of trite, but Lord, just thank you for knowing us. Thanks for loving us. Thank you for not being an impersonal God, but for being intimately involved with your creation. And not only that, making yourself known that we might understand wellness, fullness, and truth. All good things. Thank you for this time we spend in worship this morning, Lord. And we ask that you Help us to keep the gospel on our lips as we go from this place. I think about the brothers and sisters who will be traveling to Louisville to the abortion clinic this next week. Be with them, Lord. We pray over them. Ask that you would bring gospel opportunities. I, I pray for those who go to workplaces this week where they are salt and light. Bless their efforts. May you call many sons to yourself. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. May go in peace.